We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we welcome Brother Coyote himself, Gary Paul Nabhan, an agricultural ecologist, an ethnobotanist, a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, a professor, and an ecumenical Franciscan brother. Nabhan is a true polymath. He's a pioneering figure in the local food movement as well as the modern heirloom seed saving movement. He's also the author of an almost countless number of books, including The Nature of Desert Nature, Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Lands and Communities, and Mesquite, An Arboreal Love Affair. His most recent book is called Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, Justice for All Those Marginalized by Our Food System. The book is a challenging, poetic, and hopeful exploration of what the teachings of Jesus have to tell us about our modern food system and our relationship to the natural world. Even if you're not religious or even spiritual, I think this interview is still well worth your time. Nabhan has tapped into a deep and universal store of wisdom just when we need it most. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we join investigative journalist Kerry Gillum for a monthly segment we call Industrial Ag Watch. On this edition of Industrial Ag Watch, we check in with Carrie Gillum to see what stories are emerging within our industrialized food system. Carrie is the author of the 2017 book Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as other literary awards. You can also go back and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that groundbreaking book. Her new book is out, and it's called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. You can find it at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Carrie works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. Here's our latest conversation with Carrie Gillum. Welcome back, Carrie. Hi, thanks for having me. Recently, four scientists have come forward to expose disturbing and potentially illegal practices within the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. What's happening here? Who are these whistleblowers and what have they brought to light? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty disturbing, obviously, because what you're hearing from these whistleblowers, we've heard this before, I suppose, over the years, from time to time, people do come forward and say, you know, that they're trying to do good science inside our federal agencies, and they're being shut down or censored. These new whistleblowers that have come out, they've done it together, really, they're being represented um, by a group called PEER uh, out of Washington, D.C., which is the public employees for environmental responsibility organization. But what they've come out and said, and they've given very, very specific examples, is that their work uh, in, in the science is being manipulated, is being controlled, basically to benefit the corporations that make money off of these chemicals uh, to the detriment of public health. Um, they gave specific examples about how they've been told to delete um, certain language or information that identifies adverse effects associated with chemicals, you know, problems like 
um, that would affect children, developmental toxicity, uh, things that would affect brain, neurotoxicity, and, and substances that cause cancer. Uh, they're being told they're, they need to delete any language uh, that shows the risks associated with this. And, and really just to try to prove or, or prove to the public that these things are safe when they're actually not safe. And who's putting this pressure on these scientists to sort of cook the science that they're and the research that they're presenting? Yeah, well, what they say is that they're being, you know, called in front of their top managers uh, and that they're being told that they need to change these things. And, and they've even been, you know, one manager apparently even came out and said, you know, the companies uh, want this to happen. You know, the company is providing this pressure and, you know, so you need to, to make it uh, work for the companies on the company's behalf. The, they describe uh, yes packages uh, that come to them as being things that have a lot of support from lawmakers. You know, they're the very big companies that sell these chemicals do a lot of lobbying and provide a lot of financial uh, support for certain lawmakers. And so they get these lawmakers then to go to the EPA and say, you know, we want this chemical approved. Uh, don't do anything that's going to get in the way of this company and, and make the money off of these chemicals. And, and uh, so this is where a lot of the pressure comes from, they say. Well, maybe I'm cynical, but I kind of thought that this was well known, that this is sort of how it was working. Am I wrong? No, I mean, I think we all sort of are a little bit cynical, right? And mm -hmm. we know that there's pressure. But when you get really specific examples that really are alarming, um, you know, I think I think it does shine light on it. And what you're hearing is that these people, it, it got really bad, I guess, under the Trump administration, um, maybe worse than it has been over the years. But they aren't necessarily seeing relief, even though we have a new president now, you know, we have Joe Biden in there, we have a new head of the EPA. Uh, there still is just this long-standing stand, institutionalized, what, are the, what do we need to do to keep the chemical companies happy? And, you know, part of that is, is being, I guess, deceitful. Is this too strong a word, maybe? But maybe not uh, with the American public about the potential toxicity uh, of chemicals that are going out into the market. And, you know, when we're talking about chemicals, very broad sort of category, but we're also, we're talking about things that are going into products and other things that come in contact with people like you and me. Yeah. I mean, definitely we're talking about, you know, pesticides, chemicals that are used in agriculture, of course, but then also, you know, other sorts of chemicals that are used in everyday household products, perhaps, or that you're exposed to in different ways. There's a lot of concern, of course, about PFAS, um, these types of chemicals that you know are found in cooking pans and in firefighting gear, and uh, you know um, that you may spray onto you know fabric uh, to keep it make it stain resistant. These things that we we love as consumers and we've been told are so great for our lives and provide such you know conveniences come with in uh, many times really severe risks to our our health and uh, these EPA scientists, you know, are, are saying we really need uh, better science and we need to be more transparent uh, with consumers.
Well, how is the EPA risk assessment mechanism for chemicals supposed to work if it's working as intended? I mean, is the bar set very high to begin with? Well, you know, the, the laws have been tweaked over time and uh, there were there were several amendments made, you know, in 2016 to this Toxic Substances Control Act. I mean, this is what we, we refer to right now, um, where you're supposed to really be, the EPA is really supposed to be drilling down and evaluating in a, in a very serious way, the risks of not only chemicals that have also already been out on the market, but new substances that are coming in. But you've had, You've had at the same time, you know, the chemical industry really pushing to change the way the EPA assesses these chemicals or to to change the way that they uh, are able to assess them. And so this is part of it. And you you also have information coming out that the EPA is waiving a lot of the studies. So studies that you need to do or have been done in the past to assess the dangers of chemicals, now they're pushing to just allow the companies to skip a lot of these tests. So this is also something that's come out recently through whistleblowers and others that the EPA is, has been pushing hard to waive tests and they've recently celebrated waiving the thousandth test under this. And you know this is to presumably they say, you know, save animal lives. We don't have to use laboratory animals um, so much if we're waiving these tests. Um, but at the same time, you also have the chemical industry asking the EPA not to do uh, epidemiology, not to rely too much on epidemiology. So you're reducing the toxicology, the laboratory tests with animals, and you're asking the EPA not to use a lot of the epidemiology that, else, that is out there. And then you layer on top of that the pressure on the scientists um, to give assessments that favor the companies. And it's, you know, it's really a, a, <laughs> a hard road for public protection uh, is what we're hearing right now out of the EPA. So what's been the response from the EPA specifically and, and maybe also the, the Biden administration? Has, has there been a statement? Well, the Biden administration has said, we are gonna make changes. We're gonna be more protective of public health. We're re-looking at all of these things and uh, we're really going to do our job. But what you hear so far from the scientists is, is that isn't what's happening yet. So there have been, you know, these whistleblower complaints have been filed. The Office of Inspector General is supposed to be looking at this. So certain lawmakers, uh, have have said they're concerned and they really want to push, um, you know, for some changes. So, you know, we we're we don't know yet. I guess um, where this is going to go. Uh, we do have a another insider from the EPA who is actually going to have a, a trial of sorts as a whistleblower in September. Um, this is this is Dr. Etzel Ruth Etzel who is considered one of the premier children's health sciences in the world. And she was sidelined and shut down and, and told to stop talking essentially by the EPA uh, during the Trump administration. So she has a complaint that will be heard uh, in public, you know, in essentially a trial by the Merit Systems Protection Board and that'll be in September. So that'll be interesting to watch. Well, so how, how is it, and you, you mentioned this earlier, you know, how, I think there was a perception that when, you know, Scott Pruitt, for example, was the EPA director, that the EPA would really be sort of victim of regu regulatory capture, so-called. Um, 
but it's been sort of longstanding practice before and, and since. Um, how does that sort of work on a practical level? I mean, how do you end up with people who are sort of at uh, the top of the EPA um, having this legacy of these kinds of practices? Yeah, there's, you're right. I mean, I've, I've just not too long ago written a, a chapter about the history of the EPA and this sort of thing. And as you go back, when you look in the archives and things, you do see that this has been a problem uh, for a really long time. And and maintaining and protecting scientific integrity has been has been very difficult because I think there are so many powerful forces at play, uh, trying to direct policy, trying to direct regulation. Um, yeah, I mean, when you the Trump administration sort of didn't seem too interested in trying to appear to be you know guarding public health. I guess I don't know in certain ways. Um, this new administration is, is talking the talk. I think a lot of observers are still seeing, trying to see if they're actually going to, you know, walk the talk. Um, for instance, Dr. Etzel, you know, Ruth Etzel, this premier children's health um, scientist has not been reappointed to her position uh, in the Biden administration. And of course they would like to see that happen, but not, it hasn't happened yet, so. Okay, well, Carrie, thanks for keeping us informed. Thanks for asking me, thanks for doing what you do. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Okay, Gary Paul Nabhan. I've been a longtime admirer of his endless curiosity, of his versatility as a writer, and of his rare insight when it comes to ethics, agriculture, and science. He isn't someone who spends much time raging at powerful institutions. He's not always shaking his fists at corrupt corporations. Instead, he offers us pathways of hope, healing, purpose, abundance, and justice. He spent much of his life working, often in the fields, to preserve both cultural folkways and biological diversity, two things he sees as being inextricably linked. And his biography is so full of milestones and achievements that it's impossible to fit all but a fraction of them here. Born in the early 1950s, Nabhan is a first-generation Lebanese-American who was raised in Gary, Indiana. He has a BA in environmental biology from Prescott College in Arizona, an MS in plant sciences from the University of Arizona, and a PhD in the interdisciplinary arid lands resource sciences also from the University of Arizona. He served as Director of Conservation, Research, and Collections at both the Desert Botanical Garden and the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, where he did the research to help create the Ironwood Forest National Monument. He was a founding director of the Center for Sustainable Environments at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. He's on the University of Arizona faculty as a research social scientist with the Southwest Center, where he now serves as the Kellogg Endowed Chair in Southwestern Borderlands Food and Water Security. He and his wife currently live in Patagonia, Arizona on a five-acre spread near Tucson. 
I could go on and on, but I'm eager to share this interview with you today. I hope you find as much inspiration as I did in this conversation with Gary Paul Nabhan. Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Um, it's great to be here with you, Ben. I thought we'd start by setting the stage. Who were the fellaheen of 2,000 years ago, and who are they today? As you write in the book, we eat by the sweat of their brow. Right. We now uh, belatedly give them that term, essential workers. <laughs> but uh, farmers and fishers in Galilee were the peasants of their time, uh, the people who brought us our daily bread and fish. And uh, they were subsistence farmers and fishermen who sold whatever extra they had beyond what they could use. But in the context of the Roman Empire, uh, that ratio between what they could keep for themselves and what they had to uh, sell to make ends meet shifted very dramatically. And as you mentioned in the book, 2000 years ago in Galilee, there was a, a fishing crisis. And you quote the theologian Diana Butler Bass in the book, she, and she writes, the world's waterways call us to practice social justice, to restore them, to make sure rich and poor alike have access, and to manage water in drought-stricken lands with creativity and foresight. I think your book powerfully highlights the ecological undercurrents of Jesus's teachings. Why is that message so often overlooked, and how can we retrieve it from the Gospels? Well, that's a great question, Ben. I don't mean to disparage any Christian tradition, but a lot of our community service is always focused on the needs of other humans, and rightly so. But nothing in the Gospels limits our compassion and our care to the rest of creation. Uh, there are many proverbs and parables and sayings of Jesus that says that our love for the world should include species other than humans. And that includes making sure that uh, fish don't become so depleted that they go extinct or that wildlife don't become overhunted or that we take good care of our crops and fruit trees. So there's really nothing in the gospels that should limit our compassion and our concern in our Christian or broadly ethically ethical responsibility just to the needs of humankind, because of course, humankind depends on all those other species. If we were to travel back 2000 years ago to the area around the Sea of Galilee, the area in which Christ found himself, what would we see? What were the social dynamics? What were the ecological dynamics playing out there at that time? Well, first of all, I've been to uh, Israel, Palestine, and Lebanon. So I've had the gift, the blessing of getting to see that landscape through the eyes of contemporary farmers and fishermen. And it's a, it's a beautiful landscape that despite thousands of years of cultivation and thousands of years of fishing in its waters, uh, still seems like a gift to us that, that there's a richness there, both in the plant and animal species that can be used as food, however diminished over time, but also in the incredible traditions of the uh, Semitic cultures that, that live in Galilee. Uh, that said, um, those traditions hit a big speed bump just before 
the birth of uh, Jesus of Nazareth in that the Roman Empire or or what historians call the Greco-Roman Empire because many of its extractive values bled over from the Greek Empire into the Roman Empire were really colonizing areas so that they could extract natural resources, particularly food resources from them. And they would send them off by the barrel, fish paste and and, uh, wines in carts or boats from Galilee uh, to Rome. And so it's the beginning of an extractive economy that tended to use farmers and fishers as servants rather than considering them an honored class in a, a skilled profession. And gradually, because of tariffs and taxes associated with the Roman Empire, more and more of what they earned or what they uh, harvested became tribute to the uh, Romans and the secular leaders that collaborated with them, whether they were Jews or Samaritans or Phoenicians or Nabataeans. So we, we find ourselves in a time that the wonderful theologian um, Ellen Davis has written about where we all of a sudden had to face <laughs> at a micro level what we now call the process of globalization, that uh, local food put in local mouths were, uh, was no longer the norm or the goal of farming. It was uh, to feed the empire. And when Jesus of Nazareth was, was in this area in this time, he was speaking to, as we said earlier, the Fellahin, and, and that's where he found his disciples. They were fishermen. And that's no coincidence, is it? No, it's no coincidence. I, I mean, uh, the word tecton that we translate as carpenter really means a craftsman of stone and wood. And it's surprising how few of the parables use metaphors from that trade, even though Jesus apparently grew up in it, helping Joseph and perhaps uh, a brother or a cousin in in building things with his own hands, uh, whether of wood or wood and stone. But because the poorest of the poor at that time were the people who bring us our daily bread, the farmers and fishermen and uh, vineyard and orchard keepers, uh, Jesus gave them particular attention. There are more parables using metaphors from farming and fishing than any other profession. And we have very few stories about him going into cities. Uh, the, the biggest city w- was within just a few miles of, it, of him. It was named for the bureaucrats of the Roman Empire. We know that he went into Jerusalem to the great temple, but most of his time was with rural people in service to them and listening to them. And that's reflected in the corpus that we now call the good news or the gospels. And, and I want to talk about parables, which are at the heart of your book. Um, first, could you define what a parable is and also explain why Jesus chose to speak in this somewhat elliptical and elusive style? And, and second, what do these stories have to teach us about social justice and our food system? Those are great questions. So let me unpack them slowly so that I, I don't leave out a single element. Farmers that I know still speak in parables. They, they often point to one small immediate thing to reflect a larger pattern. 
And they sometimes do that in a way that is asking the listener, when I've been working with them, I guess I'm the listener, to make some leaps on our own. They sort of give us riddles to solve without putting all the pieces of the story together. So we become active participants in understanding a parable because it's always about something larger than the little scene in the parable itself. And yet during Jesus's time, it was almost taboo to talk directly about the political oppression and the pressures on farmers and fishermen that came from the Roman Empire. It's like any dominating culture. Um, it really doesn't um, give much uh, credence or uh, breathing room to critics. And so to really talk about some of the power dynamics that were affecting farmers and orchard keepers and fishers of that time, uh, Jesus had to use a metaphorical language. And he used the one of the salt of the earth, the, the poor and often uneducated people who were nevertheless very smart and very good at that kind of elliptical thinking of making connections between uh, the stuff of life right before them and the spiritual or ethical messages embedded in them. Is there a parable that stands out to you that you would want to share and interpret for us? Well, I'm always struck by how multi-layered parables are, that obviously uh, preachers of, of many faith traditions have been interpreting them for 2,000 years. So I want to humbly say that I don't expect um, anything that I've written about with the parables to be the last word. That's the fun of parables. They're like prisms that we meet them and shed light into them and light comes out of them in a different direction for each of us. So the beautiful thing about parables is that as we gain more depth of an understanding of the conditions of the time, we can perhaps see layers of meaning, meaning that say the translators of uh, the Bible for the uh, King James Version may not have glimpsed. One of those stories is that very first story about uh, Jesus meeting fishermen on the shores as they're coming in uh, from the night after having no luck fishing in the Sea of Galilee and feeling downhearted that uh, they had pressure to feed their families and to pay their taxes, but there were no fish to be caught. And Jesus, a landlubber, who they knew didn't have much experience in fishing, implored them to go right back out again, even though they were exhausted, and to look at a place just off the shores from a spot that's uh, marked on the horizon called Seven Springs that happened to be a freshwater upwelling in the Sea of Galilee that geologists and hydrologists have identified. And that was a place where elders in the fishing community said, Fish that place only when you have no luck anyplace else. Use it as a sanctuary reserved for hard times. And so as Jesus uh, urged them to go back and fish there, and they filled up their nets, Simon Peter realized, oh, yes, this is a place that my father and uncles have told me about that is special because it doesn't fit our 
the traditional patterns of when and how and where to fish. Um, it's sort of a sacred secret reserve that we need to dwell on to remember that there's a hidden abundance all around us. And so from what we know about those springs now, wherever there's a freshwater upwelling, either in oceans or in lakes, there's always a richness of nutrients, not just fresh mineralized water that comes up there that attracts fish. And fishermen knew that those places are vulnerable and easy to over exploit. So they reserved them and sometimes forgot about them. And it was Jesus's beautiful gift to the fishermen themselves, not being a, a fisherman uh, by profession to say, wait, there's something within your memory, within your own tradition that you can draw on. The gift of this abundance from our creator is in front of you, but sometimes it's hidden from you. Draw on it when you're in need. And I just think that's such a beautiful parable by so many uh, different uh, perspectives that we can all learn from it, whether we're fishermen or not. Another parable that stands out to me centers around the generosity of a vineyard owner. Could you explain that one for us? Because I, I feel like that's one of the more maybe harder to understand parables or it's a little mysterious. And I think people you know, who were listening to it sort of had strong reactions one way or another. I assume you're referring to the story in which uh, the owner goes out and hires uh, laborers at different times mm -hmm. of the day and then really pays them all the, the same, which irked the ones who'd been out all day working. But he knew that he had only a short period of time to bring in the harvest before it's spoiled. And while the first uh, cohort had begun to work, he realized that they alone couldn't bring in the entire harvest before the weather spoiled it. And so he went back and recruited people who he simply didn't uh, notice or could not initially recruit and transport earlier in the day. And yet he, he did something that he didn't have to do in a legalistic way. Uh, he could have just paid them for the two to, two to three hours, but they all collaboratively helped him bring in the entire harvest and saved him from losses. And so because he knew that he had a windfall harvest that was uh, saved from loss, he generously paid all of them. And the, the ones who were initially jealous of that, perhaps because they felt they weren't being valued, sort of had to be shocked into the fact that they lost nothing by others being paid equally to them, even though they weren't in that first call of workers. And it's true of all of us. The things that make us jealous or envious are really things that we should bless other people for rather than feeling like they're gaining when we're losing. And so it's a beautiful story that, that is an example of how again and again, Jesus sort of throws us off kilter. There is unpredictable resolution to his stories. And again, we're participants in trying to figure out ethically by that vineyard owner or another person, the 
the man with the big barn or, or the, the uh, uh, fisherman that throws back some of the fish into the water, why they're doing what they're doing. And it makes us think, but more than think, it challenges our own simplistic ethics by giving us complex dilemmas that we need to resolve in our own minds because we too will experience episodes like that over our own lives. It may not be with, with fish or grapes, but we have to practice stewardship and ethics in our own lives. And those examples can help guide us like a star on the horizon to what is an appropriate way to live in this world and care for our neighbors and care for creation. Feeding the hungry seems to be a central tenet of what Jesus stood for and, and taught. What, what role do institutions and communities of faith have to play in transforming a food system that doesn't always serve the poor as perhaps it should? I know that we now have an enormous network of organizations, governmental, nonprofit, and even for-profit organizations that uh, donate food to the hungry, that help transport it, that get it in a, a edible form to the many people who may be unemployed, sick, or housebound that can't access food as easily as some of us. But I think there's a remarkable thing that the United States has benefited from faith communities being the primary caregivers of the hungry and poor well before government programs played a role in that. And that most faith communities, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, otherwise, have always made no distinction between who they should offer food to if someone is hungry and in need of food or drink. Uh, we have laws in my state of Arizona saying it's against the law to deny a visitor or a passerby water if they come to your house or well, because that seems to be such a fundamental gesture of, of humankind to never deny someone water that's thirsty. Well, whether that's practiced today by all of us is another thing. Many people around us are hungry or thirsty, and we may not even notice that. But what I'm saying is that despite there being a science of food relief today, it's still primarily the faith communities that are the anchors. Where I live on the U.S.-Mexico border, undocumented uh, immigrants are afraid to go for help to government programs for fear that their information will be taken down and that they'll be deported. And so many of them only rely on help for uh, food and medical supplies from churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples. And I think that's a beautiful thing that that tradition in America is still so strong and vital and is not really diminished, it's strengthened. And you write about that in the chapter, which is, which is one of my favorite chapters in the book, which is on gleaning. I think that's kind of an overlooked component of, of our food system. Could you explain what that is and, and how that plays out? Many farmers and um, meat producers, livestockmen, uh, this last year couldn't even get their products to a packing plant and either had to kill and bury their animals or, or harvest 
or find people who could use them on a rather immediate basis. No farmer or rancher I know ever wants to see the food that they produce wasted. And many of them are generous enough to take the time to figure out how to get their surplus or their potential waste to people in need. And there's many, many stories from all across this country and around the world of farmers saying, I couldn't sell but a small part of my harvest because of the prices of harvesting it and of what I get for it. So I welcome anyone who has the capacity to walk into my field with a basket or a a bushel and harvest as much as you want. And so uh, farmers in our area are in coordination with refugee groups that harvest hundreds of thousands of fruit, uh, not only from fields and orchards, but off the medians in our city to make sure that none of that's wasted during a time where one in every six Americans are requesting food aid from food banks and churches and soup kitchens. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. We help farmers grow and manage their direct sales. For this week's spotlight, we have Jessica Evans from Evans Family Farm in Mount Ola, North Carolina. Jessica will be speaking at our Direct 2021 Farm Conference on August 3rd. Here's a sneak preview of what she'll be sharing at the conference. Last couple of years have definitely outgrown our growing capacity and we're fortunate enough last year to purchase the surrounding 70 acres and lease another 30. So we will be going from 10 acres to all contiguous 110 acres that we'll be managing this year with our livestock. So that's super exciting and scary. But when it comes to the business side of things, it's a little less scary when you know that your numbers work. Having something else do the numbers for me, that's an easy way to do it, has been super essential. Because again, my time is better spent doing something else, something that grows my business, my strengths, which are marketing or managing employees or you know doing some stuff out in the field instead of ticking away on the computer, which is not my favorite thing to do. If it wasn't easy, I wouldn't do it, <laughs> basically, and I would not have the data that I need to help our business grow and evaluate each enterprise kind of as we come along. And knowing those numbers as well um, has helped us grow. So when we purchased that extra land this year, we used a Farm Service Agency or FSA loan for a big part of that purchase. And if any of you have looked into those or haven't looked into those, they're amazing. The rates are far lower than any land loans you could ever find, but you do have to qualify for them. And the paperwork can be pretty intimidating. But if you know your numbers, if you have your accounting software kind of lined up, it's pretty easy. And if you look at that and realize there's information you don't don't know. That should be kind of a red flag because again, not knowing those numbers makes it really easy to not be turning a profit. Help yourself stay on track because that money in farming can quickly get away from you. If you'd like to hear more from Jessica or any of our other speakers at Direct 2021, register to attend for free at directfarmconference.com. Thanks for listening. In, In the book, you write that Jesus was wary of what happened when religion combined with the extractive economy, as you call it in the book. How did that idea manifest in his teachings and how does that relate to our current situation in agriculture? Well, again, I want to caution all of us to think that the parallels between the system, the food system of Jesus's day has the same answers as the system that we live in today. It's so complex today 
but Jesus understood how an extractive economy that also uh, tried to extract resources from people, land, food, wine, whatever, um, had the potential to impoverish people as well as the land and its waters. And so he didn't speak about it like an economist. He didn't speak about it like a food systems analyst. He spoke from the heart to people who were in need and who had seen the resources of, available to them diminish. And he subtly related that to the concentration of power in the Roman Empire and the collusion of some leaders within the cultures of the Holy Lands that were amenable to playing the game with the Romans. And so in no way do I want to disparage Italians or Jews by saying that there was a concentration of power and a collusion of people in power that impoverished most of the people in the landscape. That is true today. And again, we can name names of companies that we don't think have fair practices, but it's endemic to our structural way of dealing with and moving food. It's not just one company that's culpable. Many of the company executives would say, well, that's the way our whole food supply chain works, uh, that I make more money off simply moving the food 300 miles than the farmer makes is because I have real costs too. Well, we can argue about whether there's true equity in the system, and we need to argue about that. But the point is, um, I'm not disparaging people who play other roles in the food supply chain, but there's a lot of inequity that we have to uh, face. I think Jesus clearly recognized that and tried to mobilize people to collaborate rather than to despair over the inequity and injustices in their system. In other words, we, we never gain by getting depressed and crying about something. We have to unite and find ways to creatively solve problems without endangering ourselves by being critics of a system. And so Jesus's capacity to keep his followers for the most part, out of trouble, while bringing up very hard social and economic issues that he felt were really making them disempowered and disillusioned, I think was a really healthy thing. Sometimes if there's a problem in front of you that you can't name or you can't talk about in public, it eats away at you inside. And to give a voice to their concerns in a public setting, even through the metaphors of the parables, had a healing effect on those people of re-empowering rather than disempowering them. You, you've spent your your life in the field working with people who are like the fellaheen on the margins of society. And you've done this out of scientific curiosity, but also out of a place of compassion. And I'm, I'm curious what all of that work that you've done over the years has, has taught you. What have, what have you learned? I'm assuming many things, but it, when posing the question to you, like what comes to mind? Well, first, I'm humbled by the honesty, veracity, and insights of those who have lived experience in the food system that we all need to 
listen to and, and take into account. In other words, I see an intelligence in the poorest farm worker or fisher that I don't always see in some of the universities where I've taught because it's, it's an honest kind of intelligence of making sense of what's immediately before them. And now scientists have a nice name for that traditional ecological knowledge. Um, but that's something that Jesus recognized that there's a dignity there in what they know and how they care for resources that the rest of us need to respect. So when I've worked harvesting uh, strawberries alongside Mexican-American workers or uh, putting up silage in Nebraska or, or picking fruit from orchards on both sides of the border, being involved in a grape harvest in Italy, I, I see humanity at, at its best, that we're, we can all be active participants in caring for creation and when there's damage to creation through our food getting activities of restoring or repairing uh, that part of uh, the system that's been uh, torn or tattered by us trying to gain food from it. So most farmers and ranchers I know are actively doing what's called wildlife habitat restoration on their farms and ranches voluntarily. The government isn't forcing them to do that because they know we need pollinators. They know that we need healthy wildlife to keep pest outbreaks down. And so I, I think my own work in the fields and in fishing boats reminds me that we have to listen to the people who are on the front lines and support them, but take care of everyone in that food supply chain who's been marginalized. And that means that we have to be whole systems thinkers, but we have to have our hearts out to everyone who's been marginalized by structures that somehow don't work for the greatest enhancement of human capacity and health. In the book, you say, we can't just rage at the powerful. We have to give hope to the poor as well. Explain what you mean by that. I have heroes and heroines like Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez that grew up some, in some of the toughest traditions and conditions that you can imagine. Generations of people being miners or, or farm workers where they grew up going to 20 or 30 different kinds of schools. And most of us, if we face the conditions that they lived through as children, we would have thrown in the towel a long time ago. But like Jesus, Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, just like Martin Luther King and, and John Lewis, in, in the spite of insurmountable odds, gave people hope to move towards a better and humane and ethical and faithful future. And it's the same thing that we faced during the pandemic. There's so much to mourn about. We, we were isolated from another. We all had someone we know that died that we deeply miss. But on the other hand, when I went to get my first COVID vaccine and I saw 400 volunteers in a small county speaking every language, like it was the Tower of Babylon, where, where, where every voice was met with someone who could help them fill out their forms and get their vaccine as quickly 
and comfortably as possible. I thought that this terrible pandemic also gave us something of hope that we could get over our divisions and row in the same direction. And I think that's what Jesus was about, that he accepted the Samaritans and and the Egyptians and the Nabataeans and the Syrians and many other cultures around him. He, He walked on trails that were made by many different cultures and slept on their floors and ate what they ate. And we need to do that too, to remember that we're one humanity and we can't be torn down by the divisions in our own nation or world, but we need to work for restorative justice so that everyone has the chance to live with the blessings that each of us feel we've somehow received despite (laughs) whether we would deserve it or not. You mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic um, in this book comes at a time when we've perhaps never been more aware of so-called essential workers. What has this pandemic brought into the light for us to see? Well, where I live on the Mexican border, we had the odd disparity of people who come across the border to pick the fruit and lettuce and onions on the U.S. side being exposed first in California and Arizona to the pandemic. But then once they tested positive, were taken back to Mexico, where the health clinics could hardly deal with the volume. Some of the border towns dominated by farm workers for the California fields, the largest agricultural economy in the world. The doctors themselves tested COVID positive and were taken out of the workforce immediately. And many of those farm worker communities were left with no doctors. So we all know now that if we let any component of our society become that vulnerable, all of us stand to lose, not just that we don't get our favorite kind of melon or orange or apple or lettuce, but that others who are working for us and sometimes with us are suffering disproportionately. And, you know, at first we heard the platitudes, well, COVID affects everyone equally. Well, no, it doesn't because Some of us have far greater access to fine, dedicated health workers than other parts of our society have. So it sort of shined a brutal light on the inequities that we still have here in the richest, most well-educated country in the world, where at least 24 different ethnicities participate in the harvest in my state alone many of them immigrant people who nearly died getting to this country. And now that we're here, we have to take care of them with the passion that many of us felt we had to take care of our elders and our children during this time period. They are parts of our family. In the book, you quote theologian Harvey Cox, who, who writes, we don't just live in the empire, the empire lives in us, which I take to mean, among other things, that we sometimes have a certain indifference due to our own complicity within an economy of extraction or an empire of extraction. How do we break through that indifference to others' suffering? That's right. We all internalize messages from the media or from the power structures that make us feel inferior or that we don't deserve (laughs) um, 
things that other people almost uh, incidentally enjoy. And, uh, you know, the Harvey Coxes and Matthew Foxes um, were saying this at a time where it really made some people in churches feel uncomfortable that these guys were sort of heretics saying that the empire has infected us and that, that um, it is something that we just can't blame on the outside world. We have to deal with um, those imbalances in our own lives uh, whenever we accept privilege as a God-given gift while other people don't get it. They critique that, that, that every time we accept being treated with privilege, someone else is losing out. So it takes that self-evaluation, that discernment that we get through contemplative practice. Uh, we, we can't just uh, read a sentence like that and say, um, oh, I get it. That's really bad. That's still happening all around us. We really have to deeply probe into our own psyche. Well, am I perpetrating that same imbalance inadvertently by many of the actions that I take each day? And so the, the beautiful thing about uh, what people are now calling contemplative action, that we need to be social justice activists, but we need to do it with a deep contemplative anchor, is that we can't just say that helping others through their difficulties as volunteers is, makes us stand above the fray. <laughs> it's really that we have to do self-evaluation of where our food comes, who who is hurting and who is gaining by the way we source our food. And those are tough questions. Some people just feel so uncomfortable with that kind of self-criticism that they'd rather do anything else <laughs> each day than face those tough questions. But I think it's a really healthy time that, that social activists aren't just being angry and burning out, but they're asking those deeper questions about, say, structural racism rather than just calling someone that they don't like a racist. We're, we're not blaming any single person for racism. We're saying it's endemic in the structures, and that takes some deep undoing and healing to rid that from our systems. And the... <laughs> It's interesting that the U.S. Government Office of uh, Management and Budget says that the USDA still has more deeper tentacles of structural racism embedded in it than nearly any part of our federal government, the military, our health services, or our uh, management of the environment. So these things run deep, and we have to do deep prayer and deep thinking to find solutions that are lasting. That reminds me of a, an inter, internet meme that's been circulating the last couple of days relating to Jeff Bezos's flight into space. And the fact that the meme poses a dilemma for billionaires end world hunger or go to space for five minutes. And kind of the idea is that we're kind of waiting around for the powerful to develop a conscience. We're waiting around for the powerful to do the right thing as opposed to doing inner work within ourselves and within our communities. What does a juxtaposition like that leave you thinking about? <laughs> well, you know, the one that I think fascinates me the most is how we make 
science and technology harmonious with our faith-based stances and our ethical values rather than seeing them as two separate worlds. In other words, a technology where someone at the cost of billions of dollars can fly off <laughs> into uh, the uh, neosphere <laughs> while uh, uh, people in his own companies are, are really stuck dealing with some really grave economic problems is because we've divided the world into separate domains and, and that we can be fascinated by spaceflight without ever thinking about the, the costs of investing in that as opposed to investing in the, the vanquishing of hunger. And so I, I think for my own thing, when I first went to an Acres USCA meeting in St. Louis, to see uh, Amish and Mennonite farmers, many other people of faith, fully embodying their interest in, in science uh, of the soil and science of healthy crops and nutrition. At the same time, they felt fully comfortable being people of faith meant that they had the capacity to integrate those worlds rather than leave them as isolated, fragmented domains. And so I think there's a healthiness to that that more of America needs to recover, that science and faith are not pitted against one another, but more and more because of the amazing ethical and moral consequences of some technologies. We need people who understand the science but have that grounding in ethics to help us navigate all of this stuff, whether it's genetic engineering of crops or people to uh, end of life choices. These are tough decisions and that we have a technology to do some things doesn't necessarily mean we can do it in a humane way. So I love that to me, the circles I run into, there's more dialogue between scientists and faith keepers than ever before. And I think we all benefit from being in those dialogues. I thought we'd close by giving you a chance to outline your vision of what faith-based farming or food production looks like. Well, my Hopi friend, Michael Katua Johnson, uses that term faith-based farming. And I love it because it, it means that someone of any faith can say, whether I'm praying for the rains or praying for a good harvest, I'm asking the world, the plants and animals and the weather patterns to be my allies as a farmer. No farmer is ever working in isolation. You have the soil microbes on the bean roots <laughs> as your allies. You have the pollinators as your allies. And I envision a world where we fully accept and celebrate those allies rather than ignoring them and by ignoring them, wiping them off the face of this earth. It's like that old thing of you ignore your teeth long enough, they'll go away. Well, that's true with the healthy uh, soil microbiota. That's true with the pollinators. And, and so to me, my vision for the world is that we stop thinking about saving individual things like a single species or a single culture or a single tradition, but we start thinking about conserving relationships 
that the relationship between bee and fruit tree flower is what's endangered at this point in the world between black and white cultures that we all stand to lose if African-Americans have no Anglo-American friends or vice versa, that we are all impoverished when we fall out of relationship with one another. And so I think to help people understand concepts like symbiosis, which is a driving force in the relationship between legume crops and rhizobia and the soil overall, is not just an intellectual activity, but it's reminding us that we're not alone in the world, that we need others to live a healthy life. And if they're enhancing our health, we need to make sure that they're still around and healthy too. So it's a life of mutual respect and celebration that we're not alone, that even our bodies have 10,000 more cells of other organisms in and on us than our own genomes, cells and molecules. That's something to celebrate. You can't be alone again. <laughs> and, and loneliness and feeling isolated is really the corollary disease of this pandemic year. So many people feel that they're not cared for. And it isn't that I know that my gut microbes really care for my stomach, but in essence, by their practice, they're showing me that they do. So I just think that we can delight and celebrate in our care for creation because it puts us in touch with all the living things that contribute to and enrich our lives. Gary, thanks so much for your time today. Well, I, I love the questions that you've asked me. They're questions that all of us should be asking ourselves. And so there's some wisdom in how you read things and how you interact with us in your editing and in your podcast that I'm just grateful for. Thanks again. There you have it. Go buy Jesus for Farmers and Fishers at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Use the coupon code JULYPOD. That's J-U-L-Y-P-O-D for 10% off on all titles. Acres USA is the premier North American publisher on production scale, organic and sustainable farming. For over five decades, we've helped farmers, ranchers, and market gardeners grow food organically, sustainably, and without harmful toxic chemistry. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.